The Pleasantness of Religion, a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. My son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Proverbs 24, 13-14 Tis very probable that Solomon wrote these proverbs more especially for the use of his children, and particularly of his son that was to be the heir of the kingdom and of the chief of his riches and honors, to give him wisdom that he might be prudent and righteous in all his life. And therefore he so frequently says in this book, My son, do thus, or thus, my son, hear the instruction of thy father. My son, forget not my law, and the like. And so in our text, my son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb, which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Or second, he says, my son, because in teaching these proverbs, he does the part of a father to all those who will be instructed by him, to every reader or hearer of them, because it appertains to fathers, more especially, to instruct their children and tell them how they shall live and act. He does the part of a tutor to children in writing of these excellent instructions. He is in the room of a father to us, and we who receive instruction from him are in the room of children. Or third, because he speaks by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and in the name of God, who is our Heavenly Father. And so God is dealing with us, as with children, in giving us those blessed instructions. And so says, according to his goodness, my son, that he may thereby draw us to hearken to him. And here we are argued with from our own actions. And God makes use of what we ourselves grant and the principles we in ordinary things act according to. Eat thou honey because it is good. That is, you do eat honey because it is good. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. We may take notice in the words of one, the drift and design of the wise man in these words, that is, to exhort us to seek wisdom. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs, for the most part, is put either for Jesus Christ, the word, the power and wisdom of God, as in the eighth chapter and other places, or for grace and spiritual wisdom, taking in also a moral prudence, a measure of which is always given to those who have true grace. Both these may be resolved into the same, for true wisdom and grace in the heart is nothing else but Christ dwelling in the wise, the spirit of Christ in the godly, for they are temples of Jesus. So in which sense soever we shall take it in these words, it comes to the same thing. For if by wisdom we understand Christ, then the meaning is that Christ is pleasant to the soul when we find him and get an interest in him. Or if we understand it of a grace in the heart, that grace is sweet and raises pleasure when we obtain it. 
Grace is obtained at the same moment that Christ is obtained, and the sweetness of grace is little different from the pleasantness of Jesus Christ. 2. Observe the argument that is made use of to persuade us to seek wisdom, that is, the pleasantness of it. 3. The comparison here made use of to enforce this argument upon us, that is, the eating of honey for the sake of its sweetness. Eat thou honey because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste. We are not to take this as a command, but a concession, that is, you do eat honey for the sake of the sweetness of it. And there is the same reason why you should seek wisdom and get grace. For however that may seem an insipid thing to you before you have tried it, yet when you have found it, you will find it to be as sweet as honey to you. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Doctrine It would be worth the while to be religious if it were only for the pleasantness of it. You will eat honey, says Solomon, only for the pleasantness of it and because it is sweet to your taste. And there is the same reason it is well worth your while to seek wisdom and grace, for this is as sweet as honey when you have found it. This I hope to clear up beyond contradiction and demonstrate beyond objection by five reasons. 1. Religion does not deny a man the pleasures of sense, only taken moderately and with temperance and right manner. 2. Religion sweetens temporal delights and pleasures. 3. Because there is no pleasure but what brings more of sorrow than of pleasure, but what the religious man either does or may enjoy. 4. Religion brings no new trouble upon a man, but what brings more of pleasure than of trouble. 5. The religious man enjoys spiritual pleasures that are much better and sweeter than any others. If all these are true, certain I am that it cannot be denied that there is much the most delight in a religious life, and that is, as we say therefore, worth the while to be religious, if it were only for the delight and pleasantness of it. 1. Religion does not deny a man the pleasures of sense, only taken moderately and with temperance and in a reasonable manner. God has given us of his redundant bounty many things for the delight of our senses, for our pleasure and gratification. Religion is not a thing that makes these things useless to us, does not cut us off from the enjoyment of them. The sensual man cannot boast of the enjoyment of any kind of gratifications, but what the religious man may enjoy as well as he. There are none of the senses but God allows of the gratifications of. Yea, he has made much of provision for their gratification. Religion allows us to take the full comfort of our meat and drink, all reasonable pleasures that are to be enjoyed in conversation or recreation, allows of the gratification of all our natural appetites, and there are none of the five senses but what we are allowed to please and gratify. Indeed, religion does forbid the wicked man's unreasonable and brutish manner of enjoying sensitive pleasure, which a godly man does not desire and no reasonable man would choose. Religion teaches us to use temporal comforts like men 
and not like brutes, like reasonable creatures and not as if we had nothing else but sense and no understanding. Religion allows the enjoyment of sensitive delights temperately, moderately, and with reason, but the wicked man gluts himself with them. Any of the delights of this world are abundantly sweeter when taken temperately than when taken immoderately, as he that at a feast feeds with temperance has much greater pleasure of what he eats and drinks than he that gluts himself and vomits it up again. The godly have the prudence to take of earthly delights moderately, but the wicked man, he is unreasonable in it, by being so greedy and violent, he presently loses the relish of his pleasure. But the godly takes those things so that the sweet relish of them remains all his lifetime. Proverbs 25, 16 Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith, and vomit it. The righteous man has the prudence to eat no more honey than he can digest, and that the relish of it may remain. 2. Religion sweetens temporal delights and pleasures. Religion does not allow us to enjoy temporal comforts, but adds a new sweetness to them beyond what wicked and sensual men can find in them. When the wicked man pursues sensual delights in a wicked manner, he doth it against his reason and conscience. His flesh drives him on against his mind. His understanding consents not, but opposes him in it so that he enjoys his pleasures with war with himself, his own reason and conscience opposing him, which takes away the sweetness of the pleasure, and his body only is partaker of the pleasure and not his mind. He enjoys pleasures, but there is a sting in them, and conscience roars the while and will not give him peace. His own reason will not let him alone to enjoy them peaceably. But the godly, Taking those delights according to reason and conscience, his internal man consents to his external in the enjoyment of them, and partakes with him therein. And it is a pleasant feast that the body and soul enjoy together. His reason, the highest faculty of the man, gives him leave, and his conscience commends him in it. And there is no such perplexing disturbance in his breast as the wicked have. But all is done with peace and without the sting of conscience. The reasonable creature never feels better and more easy than when he acts reasonably and like according to the nature of a man, and like consistent with himself. And as we have already said, the temporal delights of the Christian are much sweeter than the earthly pleasures of the wicked, because they are taken with moderation. So also because they are taken in their own season, and in other respects, right manner. Everything is most beautiful and most pleasant in its season. Snow is not beautiful in summer, or rain in harvest. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He hath made everything beautiful in his time. The Christian partakes of the comforts of this life with an honest mind and with singleness of heart. Those things that are enjoyed with an honest mind are much sweeter and pleasanter than the enjoyments of a wicked heart. We read in the second chapter of Acts, at the last verse, that the primitive Christians did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Proverbs 16.8 Better is a little with righteousness 
than great revenues without right. The wicked man, though he has the pleasures of this life, yet he partakes of them with fear. He lives in a slavish fear all his days of death and hell. He eats and drinks with fear, in fear, and this takes away much of the delight of what he enjoys. Though a man be rich and fares sumptuously, yet if he eats and drinks in fear of his life, this takes away all the comfort of his riches. If one lives in the enjoyment of many good things, yet if he lives so that he is exposed to an enemy continually, a man that dwells in a cottage lives better than he. Feed a malefactor condemned to the gallows with the richest fare. He will not have so much comfort of it as the one that eats only bread and water without fear. The wicked man, he takes these things as a thief that is afraid of the shaking of a leaf. Proverbs 28.1 The wicked fleeth when no man pursueth. Also, Job 24.17 But the Christian he partakes of his delights in safety and without fear, can eat and drink without terrors, with boldness and confidence. The earthly comforts of the Christian are also very much sweetened by the consideration of the love of God, that God is their father and friend, and gives them these blessings from love to them, and because he delights in them, but the wicked can have no assurance that his enjoyments are not given to him in anger and in judgment. The temporal delights of the godly are also very much sweetened because they are enjoyed in love and peace. He eats and drinks in love to God and Jesus Christ, and in peace with his neighbors and charity towards the whole world. Proverbs 15:17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox in hatred therewith. And 17.1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness than a house full of sacrifices with strife. Ecclesiastes 4.6. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. 3. There is no pleasure but what brings more of sorrow than of pleasure but what the godly man either does or may enjoy. The sinful, unreasonable, and beastly pleasures of the wicked, they bring more of sorrow with them. The wicked may feel some pleasure for a moment. It turns to sorrow and bitterness in a little time. And then even in this life, it is but a little pleasure that is enjoyed in the time of it. And that is speedily over and turns to bitterness in the reflection and makes such a disorder in the mind and uproar in the soul that the lasting uneasiness far more than compensates the short-lived pleasure. All the pleasures of sin for the most part do bring more of sorrow than of pleasure in this life, whether the pleasures of sloth, of luxury, of drunkenness, or rioting, or fornication. If these things were let alone, a man's life in the general would be much more pleasant to him. They bring a great deal of trouble on their minds and quite destroy all peace there by fear or accusation of conscience or shame and disgrace in the world, the ruin of their children and the like, and also upon their bodies, sensuality 
being a spring of all manner of diseases and the ruin of their estates. And many other ways do vices ruin the comforts of a man's life. And it is only those pleasures that do so that religion forbids. Proverbs 23:32. At last it will bite like a serpent and sting like an adder. 4. Religion brings no new troubles upon man, but what have more of pleasure than of trouble. There is repentance of sin, though it be a deep sorrow for sin that God requires as necessary to salvation. Yet the very nature of it necessarily implies delight. Repentance of sin is a sorrow arising from the sight of God's excellency and mercy, but the apprehension of excellency or mercy must necessarily and unavoidably beget pleasure in the mind of the beholder. Tis impossible that anyone should see anything that appears to him excellent and not behold it with pleasure, and it's impossible to be affected with the mercy and love of God and his willingness to be merciful to us and love us and not be affected with pleasure at the thought of it. But this is the very affection that begets true repentance. How much soever of a paradox it may seem, it is true that repentance is a sweet sorrow, so that the more of this sorrow, the more pleasure. Especially do great delights ensue and follow it. Repentance, it clears up the mind and makes it easy and serene and brings the good of comfort into the soul. There is self-denial will also be reckoned amongst the troubles of the godly, and their laboriousness and diligence in their Christian course, and mortification in their warfare. But whoever has tried self-denial can give in his testimony that they never experience greater pleasures and joys than after great acts of self-denial. Self-denial destroys the very root and foundation of sorrow, and is nothing else but the lancing of a grievous and painful sore that effects a cure and brings abundance of health as a recompense for the pain of the operation. Reproaches and the malice and envy of the wicked may also be reckoned as some of the chief troubles of the godly. But the true Christian is of such a magnanimous mind that he ordinarily can contemn this and return into the arms of Jesus, his best friend, with the more delight. The world hates them, but they can be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. And although they themselves don't perceive in the time how those reproaches conduce to their comforts afterwards, yet God in his wise providence brings it about for their joy and greater enlightening. Reproaches are ordered by God for this end, that they may destroy sin, which is the chief root of the troubles of the godly man, and the destruction of it a foundation for delight. And when the godly patiently bear them, God commonly requites for their reproaches. 2 Samuel 16.12 It may be the Lord will look on mine affliction, and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. And so the other persecutions that Christians may meet with from the wicked. See what Christ commands concerning revilings and persecutions. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you 
and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. And James 1-2 My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. And we find that the apostles acted accordingly. Acts 5:41 And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And this was the practice of other Christians in those times. Hebrews 10:34 Ye took joyfully of the spoiling of your goods. 5 The fifth reason why it would be worth the while to be religious, if it were only for the pleasantness of it, is that the religious man enjoys spiritual pleasures that are much better than any others. He has pleasures of mind as well as pleasure of body. The wicked man cuts himself off from all pleasures in his noble and more excellent part, even his soul. We must needs conclude that the pleasures of the soul are far better than of the body. For that that is most excellent and has the highest faculties must needs be capable of the greatest delights and most excellent gratifications. First, religion sets all to rights in the soul, so that there is no opposition between one faculty and another. Wickedness disorders the mind and casts things over of their most natural and excellent order, which must needs cause trouble and uneasiness but religion places all in its true and natural order. When things are in their natural order, they are at rest and quiet, and there is no disturbance. So religion causes a calmness and quietness in the mind. The wicked man's passions are always at war with his reason, his inclination with his light and understanding. But in the religious man, all the powers are of one consent, and there is peace among them, so they all concur in the same thing. Second, tis a great pleasure for an intelligent and rational being to be excellent. Happiness and delight of soul arise always from the sight or apprehension of something that appears excellent. Thus even God himself has infinite delight in beholding his own infinite excellency. And for an excellent being, there necessarily arises pleasure. Not the godly are pleased with proud and haughty thoughts of their own excellency, for they know they have nothing but what they received, and that their excellency is wholly communicated to them by God. But the believer may rejoice, and does rejoice, to see the image of God upon their souls, to see the likeness of his dear Jesus. The saints in heaven, who have all remainders of pride taken away, do yet rejoice to see themselves made excellent by God and appearing beautiful with holiness. And if it be a great pleasure to see excellent things, it must be a sweet consideration to think that God of his grace has made me excellent and lovely. If they delight to see the loveliness of Jesus Christ, it must needs be matter of delight to see that Christ has communicated of his loveliness to their souls. Third, the pleasures of doing well are very sweet to the godly. We must take heed that we do not confound the pleasures of the proud man who is lifted up because he thinks he of his own ability 
does better than others, and of the Christian who rejoices in the grace of God that enables him to obey him and do good works. Tis essential to a Christian that it be his delight and pleasure to obey God and do well. The wicked loves to act basely, but the Christian loves to act rationally and excellently. Tis their delight to imitate God and live like Jesus and act like a rational creature. Fourth, the Christian enjoys the pleasure of the most excellent knowledge. Tis natural to the reasonable creature to love knowledge of one kind or other and to delight in the attainment of knowledge. Some seek the knowledge of earthly things and some of heavenly, but the believer has the most excellent kind of knowledge. He has the pleasure of knowing the most glorious truths, the most excellent verities. What a delight do some men take in human learning. How much greater delight does the Christian take in divine? Great part of the happiness of the angels and saints in heaven is their knowledge. Their understandings are enlarged, and their knowledge, we may conclude, is immensely larger than of the wisest men in this world. Fifth, there is very great delight the Christian enjoys in the sight he has of the glory and excellency of God. How many arts and contrivances have men to delight the eye of the body? Men take delight in the beholding of great cities, splendid buildings, and stately palaces. And what delight is often taken in the beholding of a beautiful face? May we not well conclude that great delights may also be taken in the pleasing of the eye of the mind in seeing the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most wonderful being in the world? Sixth, the godly man takes unspeakable delight in thinking that God the governor of the world and the most excellent being loves him and is his friend. What delight do men take sometimes in the love of their fellow creatures that they think them excellent? And can we be so foolish as to think there is any comparison between this and the delight that the godly take in thinking that God is their friend, yea, that he loves them with a very great love, has given himself to them, and the like? Seventh, tis most sweet to the godly to behold the beauty and enjoy the love of Christ the Mediator. He appears the most beautiful to them of anything in the world. He is to them as the rose and lily, as a bundle of myrrh. His love is a sweet fragrancy. None can tell the power of that joy that they feel from the consideration that so lovely a person loves them so as to lay down his life for them. Eighth, religion helps a man to enjoy much more pleasure in the society and conversation of men. It begets love and peace, goodwill one towards another, brotherly kindness, mutual benevolence, bounty, and a feeling of each other's welfare. And this sweetens their conversation and fellowship, makes men to delight in each other. Ninth, there are the great pleasures of hope, of glory of a resurrection, of an enjoyment of Christ forever. These are pleasures too big to be expressed. The righteous may meditate what glory, what happiness they can desire 
and may be assured at the same time that they shall enjoy it all and abundantly more. Against this particular, it may be objected that these refer to the pleasures of another life, whereas the doctrine speaks of the pleasures of religion in this life. I answer, although the things hoped for are in another life, yet the pleasure of the hope of them is enjoyed in this life. Thus I have gone through those five particulars by which I propose to prove the doctrine, and believe none will deny but that is most certain, that if religion does not deny us pleasures of sense taken with temperance, but rather sweetens them, and if it denies no pleasures at all but those that have more of sorrow than of pleasure, and brings no new sorrow but what has more of pleasure than of sorrow, and besides gives spiritual delights that are better than all others. I think it cannot be questioned in any measure, but that is well worth the while to be religious, if it were only for the pleasantness of it. Use Use number one. Hence we learn that, seeing it is so, that it is worth the while to be religious, if it were only for the delight and pleasantness of it. Then hence we may learn that sinners are left without any manner of objection against religion. They cannot object against the excellency of religion, nor profitableness of it. Their last objection that they commonly fly to is the unpleasantness of it. And I am satisfied if there be any person in this congregation that does not determine immediately after God that this is the objection that he makes, the unpleasantness of being religious and seeking God, the contrariety to his own inclinations, the opposition to the bent of his heart. But this objection we have fully answered. Can any deny but that the doctrine must needs be true, and has been evidenced so to be from the proofs that have been brought for it? If you object that you must deny yourself pleasures of sense, we have shown that religion does not deny us outward delights and pleasures, yea, that it sweetens temporal delights and pleasures. We have shown that there is no pleasure but what brings more of sorrow that religion denies, but what the godly man does or may enjoy. You cannot object the troubles that you must meet with in the religious course of life, as the troubles of a religious life bring no new troubles but what bring more of pleasure than of trouble. We have also told what great spiritual pleasures the godly meet with besides, and they must needs be great. Tis impossible but that pleasures of that kind should be exceeding great, for it is necessary in nature that spiritual pleasures, when enjoyed, should be the greatest to a spirit. Tis so in all cases, the things that are most becoming the nature of the soul will certainly cause the greatest pleasure in it. I know tis impossible to convince men of this spiritual pleasure, but however this may be, they may consider that by this doctrine they will be left without excuse before God. Use number two. Second, then, we come with double forces against the wicked to persuade them to a godly life. The most common argument that is used to urge men to godliness is the pleasures of the life to come. But this has not its effect for the sinner who is in pursuit of the pleasures of this life. 
Now, therefore, we urge to you the pleasures of this life. Therefore, you can have nothing to say. The common argument is the profitableness of religion. But alas, the wicked man is not in pursuit of profit. Tis pleasure he seeks. Now then, we will fight with them with their own weapons, for religion does not deny us any outward delights or pleasures. Use number three. If it be so, that tis worth the while to be religious if it were only for the pleasantness of it, then how exceeding great is the reward of the godly. What a reward have they in the world to come? What joys in another life? But yet this is not all. No, they have a reward in this life. In the very keeping of God's commands, there is great reward. Psalm 19.11 The reward they have in hand, besides that which is promised, is well worth all the pains they take, all the troubles they endure. God has not only promised them a great reward, and exceeding great beyond conception, but he has given them a foretaste in this world. And this taste is better than all the pleasures and riches of the wicked. Psalm 119.14 I have rejoiced in the way of thy commandments, as much as in all riches. Psalm 84.10 A day in thy courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. The Christian spends every day, as it were, in the courts of God. The very pledge that God has given to the godly as an earnest of the reward is such that it's well worth the while to deny all the pleasures of sin and to take all the troubles of religion for it. Revelation 2.17 To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving that he receiveth it. What pure delights have the godly in this life! How great, then, is the reward of the righteous! If they have such a great reward in the life to come, and so great a reward in this life into the bargain. But it may be objected, did not the apostle say, 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But I answer, the Christian has hope in another life, even while in this life. Indeed, if he expected to be turned to nothing when he died, and that he should never after enjoy God, whom he so earnestly loved, nor enjoy Christ, which he so exceedingly desired, it would be such a dreadful consideration that together with his persecutions and troubles would quite sink his heart and render him most miserable. But the Christian has the pleasure and joy of hope in this life, and this made the apostle, even in this life, though sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Use number four of trial. Is it so that tis worth the while to be religious, if only for the pleasure of it. Then from this we may have an excellent characteristic of a godly man. It is briefly thus, every man that is convinced by his own experience what he has found of the pleasantness of religion, that tis well worth the while to be religious, 
if it were only for the sake of the sweetness of religion. Is religion so sweet to him? If so, he may conclude that tis he has tasted the real sweetness of it.